The Beatles' comments about the covers had clearly touched a nerve with Dexter. And although he followed orders and used the same front cover image for Rubber Soul, he felt, with some justification, that he knew the American market better than the Beatles, and that the UK version of the album needed changing, whatever they said. The UK version of Rubber Soul was very much in the tradition of the day as far as pop albums went. Pop music in the UK at least was still very much a singles game and contributed to the majority of sales and record company profits. Albums were little more than collections of tracks which weren't deemed good enough for singles or were songs which went down well on stage. There were no time for grand artistic statements EMI wanted simply to get the album into the shops for Christmas. Knowing he had to lose two tracks anyway, Dexter decided to go further and replace another two from the UK running order. Firstly, he removed Nowhere Man and If I Needed Someone. Then, in some say a stroke of genius, he took off Drive My Car from Side 1 and What Goes On from Side 2 and replaced them with I've Just Seen A Face and It's Only Love which have both been buried on side two of the UK Help album and were yet to be released in the US. Spearheaded by Dylan and the Birds, folk rock was a big deal in the US in 1965, and Dexter said later that it was his intention to create a folk album. True or not, it was a very smart move. Welcome to this week's Winley was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. Well, John, last week was great. Ken Womack did a really nice job not only giving us an exclusive on some of what's in Mao's diaries, but at least kind of answering some of our questions on what George Martin was doing during the Get Back sessions. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of good information in that show, so pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, go back, pick it up. A lot of stuff. So this week we're going to be going back, dipping into the Capitol archives. We're going to be talking about Rubber Soul, Yesterday and Today, and just a little bit about Revolver because, well, you can't discuss Yesterday and Today without talking about Revolver slightly. Right. Lots of really interesting things about Rubber Soul. Rubber Soul was the Christmas 1965 offering from the Beatles, although the album came out on the same day as their single that was not on the record. Right. Day Tripper. Yeah, Day Tripper and, and We Can Work It Out. And it's- yeah. In my own experience, Day Tripper was a single I bought for my sister for Christmas. I think 
the Rubber Soul album came later. For yourself or for her? <laughs> for the family. <laughs> what was sort of brewing behind the scenes? Back on August the 29th at the Capitol Tower in Hollywood, the Beatles were presented with gold discs for the Help album. And interestingly, there's a shot taken during that ceremony of John closely scrutinizing his award. It's possible that this was the first time he'd seen the Help album cover close up, and he was not impressed, and passed on his displeasure to Brian Epstein, who in turn expressed them in his own polite way to Capitol President Alan Livingston in a meeting the following day. Evidence of this comes from a memo written after that meeting by Livingston to Dave Dexter. Dated August the 31st, 1965, yesterday, Brian Epstein expressed the very strong hope that we would consider using the same artwork for our Beatle album covers as England does. And of course, Dave Dexter was dismissive of the whole idea. Right. He certainly had a view of the Beatles as a Capitol Records commodity that fell on him to manage. We know how to sell this band in America better than you Brits do over there. Right. In retrospect, it's like, how naive was that? But at the time, it wasn't unusual. It's not like he took some action that was out of step with what was going on in the recording industry. One only need look at the American version of Aftermath. <laughs> right. But you can also see Brian's point. This is now two plus years into the Beatles as a phenomenon. They were at the top of the American charts. You know, maybe they knew better what to do with their offerings. Dexter came out swinging in a memo to Livingston later that same day, in which he strongly defended his work on the Beatles albums. No capital LP is ever identical in repertoire to the British LP. He also points out that because EMI persists in the 14-track package, we will never, ever be in a position to release with them simultaneously. For financial reasons, the capital albums contain 12 tracks, because in the US, the song publishers are paid a mechanical license fee for every song which appeared on an album, whereas in England, publishers receive a share of the total royalties paid on each album sold. Dexter also argued that, we consider our artwork in virtually every case superior to the English front cover art, artistically as well as commercially. Ours is slanted more to the merchandising end, we also use more color than EMI. Even though years later, McCartney would say, you know, it goes over to America and it gets cheap. Their type on the front cover is smaller, underplayed. In some cases, at the side or bottom of the cover, instead of at the top, as we must do. He was also bemused by the fact that Epstein sold us one color transparency for a front cover, Beatles 65, which was never used on an EMI cover. Evidence that the help cover had started all this comes in the next paragraph as Dexter defends his design by saying that EMI omitted most of the United Artists billing, which we were required to reproduce on front, not the back. Thus theirs is a bit cleaner looking. But ours has more grab, more sales appeal, we think. Finally, Dexter makes the point that when Japan EMI and numerous other affiliates issue Beatles albums, they more often than not use the capital front covers. And Dexter ends by saying, if we have to wait around for British covers in future, 
it will compound our problems with Beatles product even more than now. So they had different views of things, but at that point, the power was with the record company in America. Although I think it was starting to turn, Capital was at least starting to listen to what Brian was telling them. What came back in response to this memo about the uh, album covers... On September 2nd, Capital's creative executive, Voyle Gilmore, who was CC'd on the original memo, responded to Livingston's memo by agreeing with Epstein's proposal by saying this would be a good idea. Also adding that he would like to have the songs in the albums identical and released simultaneously. I don't know if this is possible, but I feel we should do everything possible to release in this fashion. So, you know, there were executives who, who were listening and saying, well, you know, maybe they do know best. Yeah, you know, success breed success and the Beatles continue to sell incredible amounts of, of records. And at least they managed to convince Dexter to the extent that, well, they did call it Rubber Soul and they did more or less use the same front and back covers. You know, they didn't come up with something like uh, Beatles 66 or Beatles 8, which they very easily could have done. Yeah. Power was swinging towards the band and that was cool, but they were still changing the albums for sure. But there's also one last gasp from Livingston and Dexter, an internal memo dated October the 12th of 1965. You know, they knew Rubber Soul was coming. They probably hadn't heard what was going to be on it yet, but they had a rather brilliant, well, brilliant in their minds idea. Alan, we do not have 11 selections featuring Paul McCartney as a solo vocalist. Well, he is probably sung 11 solos on records. Most of them feature solos by other members of the group as well. And I suspect that Epstein and the other three guys would scream like hell if a package were built exclusively around McCartney. As soon as you hear from Epstein on this project, please <laughs> let me know. So they actually sent off a memo to Brian saying, uh, you know, we'd like to release a McCartney solo album, although it's not clear whether they wanted Paul to come in and record solo versions of some of the old Beatles tracks or whether they were just going to grab them off of previous albums. Right. Or perhaps it was after a pot filled luncheon where they go, Hey, you know, it'd be a good idea. Paul McCartney. <laughs> the other guy goes, yeah. Wow. He sells good. I guess Ringo was still the favorite Beatle at that time. Well, he, yeah. I mean, he gets a lot of fan mail, but really Paul McCartney was kind of the thing. Cute, talented, funny. I've never heard what exactly Brian's response to that was, but I think we can guess. <laughs> Just by the fact that it didn't happen. Long about this time, a whole batch of up-and-coming young artists were signed for recording sessions. Well, maybe uh, Elder Rigby would have been the follow-up. It's just a crazy idea. Would that have replaced Yesterday and Today if it had gone forward? I mean, Yesterday certainly would have been one of the songs on this record. Yeah, I don't know. It's just such an insane idea. I can't even get my head around it. I don't get it either, but and it probably wasn't pot that they were doing in the offices of Capitol at that point in time. But, but they were having a few uh, three, four, five, six martini launches. <laughs> well, it was out in L.A., and so, you know, who knows? Who else can we disparage? <laughs> 1951 gave way to another year, along about December the 31st, an event which brought 1952, Capitol's 10th birthday anniversary, as well as a platter that was branded a smash by its producers, Voyle Gilmore and Lee Gillette, the very night it was recorded down on Melrose Avenue in Hollywood. 
the, this guy Voyle Gilmore seems to be the only one who who had his head on at least a little bit straight. Yeah, and I've never actually heard much about him. Well, I, I remember him in a photo, the early early Beatlemania publicity, because there were four Capitol executives all wearing Beatle wigs, and Voyle Gilmore is one of them, which I just basically remember because it's an interesting name. Dave Dexter would shortly be removed from his position at Capitol as head Beatle guy. Right, because he was going to be told that you can't do that anymore. And it's weird, because we're going to go in and talk about this album, which, because of what he did, had a huge impact. Of the Capitol compilations, there are two, well, three if you count Meet the Beatles, but, but Meet the Beatles to a certain extent, doesn't count because, well, they had everything up to that point to choose from to, to make the best record. Yeah, everything from 63, everything they'd recorded. Second album is a tremendous early rock and roll album, and then Rubber Soul is perhaps even better than the British, but at least on par with the British as a folky style rock album yeah i mean and it was just on time what was going on on the charts and their look with those jackets and uh it was more of a folk album more acoustic i remember somebody referred to it as kind of wooded smoke you know and john's jacket is on display in the hard rock i've seen it it's much smaller than you might guess it is, but it, it's one of those things that is really cool to see you know up close behind glass yeah, imagine. But the thing is, because of the way the album came off, I'm sure most know, but in case anyone doesn't, they took off several songs that were on the British album. And the songs they took off were more electric, you know, Drive My Car, Nowhere Man, and there, If I Needed Someone, and replaced them with a couple of acoustic numbers from Help. They did. No, I don't know if it was intentional that they had pulled back acoustic numbers off of the help soundtrack or if they were just really lucky well i mean the help soundtrack here was film music yeah exactly uh, you know half film music but still when they were choosing which songs well I, I guess they mostly just omitted the b-side well they could have put some of them on beetle six or something you know uh and then of course some of them did end up going on Yesterday and today. I mean, yesterday in particular. And then with this, the United States Rubber Soul, they took off Ringo's portion, What Goes On. Which, of course, then makes Yesterday and Today a Ringo-heavy album. which The heaviest Ringo album that they ever put out. And the most country. But they did that. And then the weird thing was they didn't put on the single, which, as you mentioned, was Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out. It's just odd that here's this album and... The single is not going to be on it. And that's that's odd for Capitol. Uh, yesterday and Today was clearly in the works. Well, yeah. I don't know if the Beatles had told them that there would be only one album released in 1966. The third film had basically gone south at this point, so there wasn't going to be a film soundtrack. Right. So they added these songs, and it it really affected the way the album came across. You just imagine the difference between... I've just seen a face, which is this exuberant acoustic number, and drive my car.
we can do. Let's make something up. So impromptu this, isn't it? I love the way we do this. That's how you judge her. Pizza! Although it should be noted that both of them are equally good as album openers. <laughs> Let's see what you've got and we'll let the audience decide. Go ahead. A resounding no. <laughs> Told you we should have done Sound of Silence. So you, you go from that acoustic song into Norwegian Wood. There's just something about the way this album was set up that made it sound like a folk album. Although Nowhere Man would have fit on the American Rubber Soul. It would have, but but no. <laughs> Okay. The thing is, is that this is the version that Brian Wilson heard when he first heard Rubber Soul. And the fact that it was this cohesive folk feeling, he's quoted it many times. It's directly the inspiration for Pet Sounds, which was his greatest album. Because he thought, wow, this is cool that it's all kind of tied together in a feel. I could do that too, just do a whole album. Have you heard Rubber Soul, man? Yeah, 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 I've heard it. Oh, I want to do an album like this with the whole things, the gas, all good stuff with like a theme, you know? So, in a way, what Dave Dexter did was produce an album that was more than just a great Beatles album, it influenced a great Beach Boys album. Now listen, Brian, nobody's asking you to be the Beatles. Yeah, it's a little bit weird that Revolver would not result in a Beach Boys album, but it would only re uh, result in the Good Vibrations single. Yeah, although I think it certainly had an impact on his work on Smile, which was an album that he was working on at the time. It never got released. And then long term, of course, Pepper would just... <laughs> Cause him to cave in on himself. He worked really, really hard on Smile. And for those who haven't heard it, brilliant. Um, but he thought in his competition with the Beatles, which was a thing for him, that Smile would be hailed as this just amazing recording, innovative and revolutionary. And then he didn't get it finished and Pepper came out and he just kind of went, well, that's it. That's the album that's revolutionary and 
So, okay, so we, we move back to 1965. Rubber Soul was released on the 6th of December, uh, as we mentioned. Now, one thing that I noticed looking through the charts, all the way through the Christmas issue of Billboard, it took that long for Rubber Soul to hit the charts, and it hit the charts at number 106. So, I mean, 19 days? Uh, you know, I granted things didn't move as quickly as they do now, but it took 19 days for it to even enter the charts. Well, what I've gathered over time is that exact release dates are an official thing and records actually getting out is another thing. Gotcha. And and then of course, as we will discover with yesterday and today, well, uh, even though there was a street date breaking, it was very common particularly with the rack jobbers, you know, Sears and JC pennies and such. Yeah, it was crazy. But, uh, but yeah, so, so it was released on the, the official release date was the 6th of December. It entered the LP chart at number 106 in the Christmas issue. Then the next week it moved up to number 60. And then by the eighth, it went all the way up to number one. Trying to remember other records at the time. The other, Records on the charts were uh, the Sound of Music soundtrack, <laughs> the infamous Whipped Cream and Other Delights by Herb, Herb Albert's Tijuana Brass Band. I know my dad bought that. <laughs> Everyone bought that record for the girl on the cover, I think. Yeah, right. Those were the two that were at the top of the charts that were replaced by Rubber Soul. Right. Uh, and the Tijuana Brass album would actually end up being the one that would topple Rubber Soul's run. Wow. Rubber Soul was number one on the charts for six weeks. So, I mean, the album was around for, you know, two months at that point, and it still sold more copies than Rubber Soul did. Again, the cover didn't hurt. <laughs> right. There it is, the new Beatle album. We've got it, and nobody else in the whole Pittsburgh area has it. It's going to be called Rubber Soul in England. It's a new, we're not sure that's going to be the name of the Beatle album when it comes out here in America. But in England, it's called Rubber Soul, S-O-U-L. And they have soul, too. That gives you a good feel for what was going on in the album charts. Yeah. And then I have some sales numbers here. First off, uh, Capital believed in Rubber Soul. They had a press release, which then went to Billboard, which tells us that Rubber Soul will be a whopper for the Beatles. That's in on January the 1st, 1966. And that they sold 1,200,000 copies in the first nine days. Now, <laughs> so, again, how that amounts to being number 106. Yeah, not on the charts yet. It's all make-believe. I don't know. Could be. You know, record companies also toot their horns a lot. The initial pressing was 2 million copies, which it was the Beatles it was going to sell. But still, that is some backing to give the record. I just think their previous stuff, Ticket to Ride and Help and Capital had put out yesterday as a single and it was doing well. So I'm not surprised the record company is full force behind them. What, again, confuses me is why there's resistance to having the Beatles' artistic vision <laughs> honored. But, I mean, at the very least, like I say, they did keep the cover. They kept the cover both front and back. They kept the title. And they actually more or less kept the song listing with the caveat that, well, we're going to cut some songs off. Uh, and they had their built-in excuse. Well, I mean, the royalty rates are different 
between England and here, they can have 14 songs. The most we can have is 12. And for that matter, this was the first 12 song LP they put out for the Beatles in quite a while. Most of them had been 11 songs to this point. While they weren't completely queuing to Epstein's line, they were at least listening to what he has to say. Now, of course, there were other issues. I mean, you know, the Beatles contract with EMI was still up for grabs. It would have to be renewed. And so that may have something to do with it. Dexter and Co. probably had some pressure put on them by their overlords. Yeah. Well, it was a slow march, <laughs> but by Sergeant Pepper, they, they, they would hew the line. Yes. That was a year away, basically. My question with regards to Rubber Soul is, why didn't they pull Michelle as a single? That kind of seems an obvious single in the yesterday mold from this album. See, there are songs which we, we like, but we wouldn't like to have out as singles. Because it's a very funny thing about putting a single out, you know. I think we always used to think um, for a single we'll have to have something that's pretty fast. I don't know why, you know, just because they always sounded like the singles, you know, the, the faster ones. And so when, Mich- when we did Michelle, and we all thought it was okay, you know, but we just didn't want it out as representative of us uh, at the time. Well, songs certainly got played a lot. Uh, didn't Nowhere Man come out around that time? You know, that wasn't a single in Britain, but it was a big single here. Who knows what they were actually thinking. Discs that nab the nickels, pull the pesos in every kind of location, from Vermont to Tijuana and Tampa to Tacoma. We do not have Dave Dexter's thoughts in our heads, <laughs> thankfully. Well, you know, that certainly would be an interesting... Did he know what he was thinking? I, I don't even know that, necessarily. Let's not be hard on him, because we've just said he created two of the best... <laughs> Indeed. ...best albums in the Beatles canon. And I know some of it is you you grow up uh, with the version that you grew up with. And we're both old enough that we actually grew up with the American version of Rubber Soul. Although it didn't take me too long to get past that and accept the, the British. You know, once the CDs came out, and even before then, I mean, during the vinyl era, the American was probably my go-to. But after the CDs came out, it's like, yeah, this is probably the better collection. Yeah, the only thing I was really disappointed in the, in the CDs is that the false start in I'm Looking Through You was not included, and that was a favorite moment of mine. <laughs> and incidentally, I loved the poster they put out to uh, record stores. It's just the cover of the album, but it not only does it tell you that there are 12 brand new Beatles songs, it tells you that this is great for giving or just groovy <laughs> listening. Groovy has sort of become one of those words that's like, Ugh. But no, they actually used it, and they put it on promotional material for Rubber Soul. Yeah, well, you know, Groovy and all that stuff was showing up on television. Bewitched. Hi, Josie here with two free Josie and the Pussycats offers from Kellogg's. Groovy gifts with faces of my Pussycats TV gang. Look for these special Kellogg's cereal packages. Get your free Josie and the Pussycats gifts today. It's kind of like the the scene in Hard Day's Night with Susan. You know, there are people who think that they're in touch with the young generation, and so they try to grab hold of terms, you know, fab, groovy, all that stuff to make their 
products seem really cool. Hey, that's a groovy button. What does it say? Love is the ultimate trip. Oh, that's a nice Todd. That's a groovy button. What does it say? Save the Texas prairie chicken. Let's run through the track listing as it was on the American album. Side one starred with I've Just Seen a Face. Then it was followed up by Norwegian Wood. That must have been a shock to the American listeners. I mean, I guess the birds were kind of getting moving toward the sitar sound, but um, that is really the first solid use of the sitar and really the Indian feel in a pop record. Yeah. For me, it was more the Beatles playing with sound. I remember thinking that Ticket to Ride had this just unique sound because of the sound of the guitar and the drums. And so uh, Norwegian Wood was part of that sound exploration. I didn't really think about what it was for a while as far as, oh, it is kind of Indian in flavor. And it does bring us into the folky feel. Not quite Dylan. I mean, John had moved past his overt Dylan phase on help. But, uh, you know, the the influence without being a direct ripoff. Yeah. Although Dylan will tell you that John was ripping off fourth time around.
There's some similarities, but I don't believe that. He was clearly influenced by Dylan, and that's I can't think of a Lennon song where I'd go, well, he ripped off Dylan, because they're both very much original. Well, other than you've got to hide your love away, you, you replace the flutes with the harmonica, and that's a Dylan song. It's not a direct ripoff of any single song, but it's a we are going to do a Dylan song. So, okay, Norwegian Wood is followed by uh, You Won't See Me. Right. Then Think for Yourself, which is the only George song we get on the American Rubber Soul. Yes. Then The Word, which very much is the early clue to the new direction, you know. Thematically. (laughs) Then Michelle rounds out side one. Yes. I will tell you that after yesterday, Michelle solidified my mother being won over. (laughs) It's like, well, that's very nice. Well, and, you know, as if Paul wasn't having enough luck with the women singing in French, <laughs> that's just overegging a tiny <laughs> little bit there, Paul. Yeah. You don't have enough women. You want more. And how can you get them? You can get them by singing in French. I guess that party trick is, I think that's what he refers to it as, of doing a kind of a French number was when he was like 17, you know, so he, he could do that. <laughs> He used to talk double Dutch French, you see, just to sing the bit, like that. So he had that, and then he just brought it along, and we sort of started fiddling around trying to get a middle eight. I remember we'd been to art school parties, really through John, who was at the art school, and at one of those things, there was the troubadour sitting with his guitar, doing, you know, Jacques Brel songs, those little artsy do's. You'd often see someone like that, you know, over in a corner, in a black sweater or something. It was kind of, oh, very good, you know, oh, that's nice. So I wanted to do something a bit like that, a bit of a skit on him, actually. So I said, there were no words, it was just, gentlemen, I'd like to play for you now. You know, it was my French bit, my French joke on guitar. And I did it for years like that. And somebody sort of said, you know that joke French thing you do? It was John. He said, that'd be a good song, though. Go watch 321 if you want to know the yeah. rest of that story. That's worth seeing. So, side one, great way to uh, to end it with that muted guitar tone that George uses uh, as it fades in... Yeah, it's almost like Hey Jude, except Hey Jude does go on forever. <laughs> Here you just, in your head, right. it goes on forever. Right. It's it's one of those moments that happen in some songs where it's like, at the very end, there's something going on, and then they choose to fade it out. It's like, no, no, it's this is where it's getting good. Then we move on to side two, It's Only Love, followed by Girl. Well, It's Only Love is from earlier in the year so it's one of the ones that was added in the american it's from help it's basically powered by these acoustic guitars there's a prominent electric lead but again it it adds to the feel of that folkiness yeah uh then then girl uh which of course their favorite thing is well they they got away with singing tit 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 in the background Even if that's what they're singing, it's like, it doesn't have that much to do with the song. And, you know, great, you got away with it and it's fun, (laughs) but 
it, it doesn't change the song to my mind much one way or the other. It's just a game. Okay. But the lyric, this was a different kind of lyric as well. Well, for John in particular, I mean, he likes to talk about the figure which, at least in his mind, would become Yoko. Really, I would say he was looking back to his thoughts of Astrid and to Mimi to a certain extent, the woman who could straighten him out. Yeah, the girl, that character, that person he writes to at times as as the girl which became yoko for him really cool lyric that's one of the things about rubber soul is john's lyric it's definitely john yeah. growing up i mean it's an extension of what we got in yeah, help for sure it's the next step down that path before he lets the acid take over yeah although you know we, we should say by the time they were recording this they had already taken acid what everybody sort of refers to as the pot album yeah. Um, I think grass was really influential in a lot of our changes. A lot of different sounds on the records. What were they into? They were into acid. Well, you know, the there's a, a famous uh, tape um, of them working on Think for Yourself, working it out, and it's pretty hilarious. And I'm sorry, sometimes I feel less than useless at these sessions. I really do. Of course, Cynthia understands. I often talk to her about it when we get home. Mm. I say, sometime, you know, Cynthia, I just can't get the note. Yeah. Well. She understands a lot of things like that because she went to Bali. Yeah. For our holidays. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Bali. I don't care how you feel. I feel ridiculous. (laughs) was wrong oh I'm so sorry I feel so stupid I don't know what to do they're <laughs> really stoned the tiny little bit of that harmony ends up in yellow submarine yeah. The song I'm looking through you has a false start on it that only appears on US stereo versions. You hear the main guitar riff start, but then it stops only to start again. You see, when Parlophone sent over the stereo masters to the US, it was intended that the false start would be edited out of the final release, but someone at Capitol thought this was part of the song and left it on there. After I'm looking through you is uh, is in my life, another great John song. I always remember that in my life is basically this the one song where John and Paul totally disagree with how it was written. John thinks Paul helps with like the middle eight, but Paul goes, no, the melody is completely mine. Yeah. And they're allowed to disagree. I mean, of course they don't necessarily have the capability of remembering who wrote what at any given moment. Just to, you know, slip it in there. It turns out that Lennon wrote the whole thing. When you do the math by counting the little bits that are unique to the people, the probability that McCartney wrote it was 0.018. That's essentially zero. In other words, this is pretty well definitive. Lennon wrote the music. And in situations like this, you'd better believe the math because it's much more reliable than people's recollections, especially given that they collaborated writing it in the 60s with an incredibly altered mental state ah, due to all the stuff they were ingesting. So, I know, I know uh, what I, you're saying, yeah. Well, but I would go with mathematics. Assessing authorship of Beatles songs from musical content 
Bayesian classification modeling from bags of words representations. I mean, we certainly know the lyrics came from John, and of course, his original lyrics are kind of terrible. Well, yeah. <laughs> but it was just an idea. It was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write down all the places when I got on the bus and got through to Penny Lane. If that's what he did, I mean, those lyrics could be, he had some of it worked out, but the lyrics that to us read as being terrible are that way because it doesn't fit into a, the rhyme scheme or, or the meter, but perhaps he was actually writing yeah. music to that, which got tossed. It could have been something completely different. Yes. But it definitely led him to, uh, it led him to strawberry fields and it led Paul to Penny Lane. Yeah. Because both of those were mentioned among the various things that he had uh, written down uh, amongst possibilities of the lyrics for this song. Right. George Martin had done the speeded up instrument trick before, but here, the one that everyone remembers. <laughs> right. Because it was the Beatles and a freaking, what sounded like a harpsichord. Oh my gosh. What is that? It really kind of uh, made them seem more musically adept almost nobody can play that but billy joel can play it live <laughs> i love you more no i know i'll never lose affection which is why he's billy joel you know when you listen to that lead it cuts off really abruptly. Because of the way it had to be recorded and stopped before it moved into a track. And I didn't hear that for a long time until I really started listening carefully to how things were recorded. And it's like, that's wild. And then Wait, it's one of the weaker songs on the record, I would think. Yeah, that's also from Help, or it started. Yeah, it also fits less well with the other songs. Yeah, it's got that guitar uh, sound. I think Nowhere Man might have been a better choice than Wait. Yeah, again, you don't know what their thinking is, but perhaps when they heard Nowhere Man, they're like, well, that could be a spring single. We're not going to put it on this. And then the record closes with Run For Your Life. Yeah, it came from an old blues song that Elvis covered, but <laughs> it, it doesn't hold up real well in the present day, I don't think. No. Uh... <laughs> it's one of those that just requires a disclaimer in front of it. Right. In his defense, I would say that if you were to play it in, say, an old blues style, the lyric wouldn't have been out of place. Well, I mean, baby, let's play house. It doesn't sound wrong and it doesn't sound nearly so threatening <laughs> as it does here. I mean, that's part of it. John comes out and he's threatening this woman. Yeah. You know, it's the first lyric in the song. Yeah. And the fact that it's the end. <laughs> yeah. It, it is a more threatening song. And Cynthia must've been thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> we move on to yesterday and today 
we're not going to talk too much about the Butcher cover. We've talked about the Butcher cover a lot on this show before, but I mean, there are a couple of things that do need to be mentioned. First off, the Butcher cover, despite John Lennon's insistence, was not the first choice for the cover. No. Brian had sent them one of the shots with his curtains behind them, and they were going to use that as the cover. But Brian didn't like that. So it's like, well, okay, send us another cover. And that was when the Butcher came into contention. It's like, okay, you didn't like our first choice. Here's our second choice. So Brian didn't like the first choice. Brian had sent them options of the various trunk shots. And they came back with mock-ups. And Brian didn't like any of the mock-ups. And so it's like, okay, well, then send us another cover. And that was when it became the Butcher cover. How petulant. The fact that they went through three different covers, you start to see, well, okay, I can understand why Capital was a little bit PO'd with what was going on here. You know, make up your mind, dude. <laughs> right. You've been bitching about covers, so supply one. Exactly. That was when it became The Butcher. And the thing about The Butcher is the Capital's art department got behind it. They loved the photo. And Livingston and Dexter had basically, I guess, just sort of thrown up their hands. It's like, well, let them do what they want to do. It was a weird year in the beginning. You had the Maureen Cleave interview, which was stirring across America. And then the pictures of butchered babies. and The Brits didn't care. I mean, you know, that photo had been out. Rain and paperback writer promotion. It's like, oh, okay, fine. Well, that's weird. Well, <laughs> The difference between the British and the, the Americans can sometimes be wide. They accepted it, and people took offense here. Oh, I'm surprised. You know, a handful of first states did get sold in rack jobbers like Sears and record stores that put the record out early. Right. That is one way that people have butcher covers. Uh, the other way is that uh, certain capital execs did have some... Uh, Alan Livingston is known for having a box of them that he took home and that he ended up giving to his son. It's like, here, sell them for whatever they're worth. Right. So he went to a Beatle Fest, and, which was the first time that we ever really saw what a first date looked like absolutely sealed. I hope he got some money. In 1977, the first copies, he got thousands of dollars. Some of the later copies, he got tens of thousands. And the stereos, he got uh, considerably more than that. Hmm. Well, that worked out. Thanks, Dad. I wonder how he declared that to the IRS. <laughs> Income from butcher cover. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the whole butcher thing is interesting, but I think it's just, it's kind of tied to just the point where the favor of the press turned against the Beatles for a little bit. That's one of the reasons why... Ed Sullivan could not get the Beatles at Shea Stadium aired on the network he basically owned. He had to go to ABC to get the Beatles at Shea Stadium on the air because CBS thought it was just too hot. Crazy. I think it's only the fact that the Beatles did what they always did, which was in the face of all this criticism, they put out a, an amazing album. Although it wasn't their album, it was Leftovers. This really was Leftovers plus, well, a handful of songs. I'm going to include yesterday in the controversy. I'm saying Revolver was what. Oh, Revolver was the amazing album. Okay. My family was a member of the Capitol Records Club at the time. And so we had uh, 
the record club versions of both Rubber Soul and Yesterday and Today. And hearing that album, it swings really wildly. <laughs> you know, you've got Ringo's two country songs. You have Yesterday. You have Dr. Robert. Why don't we just go through it in order? This is back to the 11 songs. There are not 12 songs on Yesterday and Today, since they had no British equivalent to model themselves on. Oh, ooh, we can go back to 11 songs. Well, they didn't have extras this time. In fact, that's why they had to request songs from Revolver, which hadn't been released yet. Although, I mean, they did want something for the today end of things. (laughs) <laughs> well we're gonna name the album that okay we've got yesterday that's an old song but nowhere man was a single at that point and as far as the public was concerned that was today well okay i think they just needed more songs i've always found it a little bit surprising that george martin just sort of oh all right here you go i don't know if he really could have refused them but it seemed a little bit out of character to me I'm imagining George Martin's voice as he tells John Lennon, I'm taking three of your songs and I'm sending them to America for a whole other album. So they won't be on Revolver. And whenever we cover the American Revolver, we will comment on how McCartney heavy that record is. Because it is. John Lennon's songs got sent for yesterday and today. Side one, they pull in the missing song from Rubber Soul, the opening track from there, Drive My Car. Great opening for an album. I wonder where they got that idea. Absolutely. Uh, then uh, I'm Only Sleeping, different backwards guitar bits. Yes. It, it's interesting that, that, you know, not only did they send them three Lennon songs, but songs that apparently weren't finished. <laughs> well, indeed. Uh, and then Nowhere Man. Right. Another one ripped straight off of Rubber Soul. Yeah, and the transition between I'm Only Sleeping into Nowhere Man is like, it's really good. That's one of the things that does actually work on this disc. Then Dr. Robert, what did people think about Dr. Robert in 1966? Well, I don't know, because I, you know, I was a little kid. And so, uh, but I, I knew it was something risque. Uh, even 20 years ago, I started hearing these stories about, oh, Mickey Mantle had a doctor who would provide him with the B12. Vitamin injections, which would basically be the Dr. Robert story. And it's like, oh, that's what John's talking about. Yeah. You're commenting on when you were 10 years old. But even when I was 10 years old, you know, enough of that had filtered down to the level of someone at that age. It's like, oh, that's what the deal is. Whereas in 1966, it wouldn't have been. Well, you know, I'd like to say we were all more naive, but that was probably just me. (laughs) (laughs) then dr robert is followed up by yesterday right what can you say yeah great song the placement on the record is odd 
Yeah, it probably should have gone after Act Naturally. Well, you know, it could close the side or open side two. So yesterday is followed by Act Naturally, which is good, but it's not a great side closer. Right. I think maybe what we've decided is that they should have been flipped. And Dr. Robert goes into Act Naturally better than it does yesterday. Yesterday and Act Naturally were the single. Yeah. Here. So, you know, it probably seemed more natural than it does to us. To leave the order the way it was. You flip over to side two, and your bird can sing. Now, there's a great side opener. Why did they send a great John Lennon song? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that. Then there's Joe Walsh, who spent like months learning how to play all three parts because he thought it was a single part. Uh. <laughs> then he went to Ringo and said, you know, how did you guys play that? Oh, well, that was three guitars. <laughs> and, you know, I was talking about Billy Joel. Joe Walsh can still play all three parts simultaneously. <laughs> it's amazing how and why they influence. Then it's followed by uh, If I Needed Someone. Right. Great song, although, you know, this whole collection of songs is a collection of songs. It's not really an album. Well, it felt like an album at the time. Because to me, to end with, you know, that final chord of Andrew Burke can sing and then start up with the 12 string of If I Needed Someone was a great sound. It seemed like it was very cohesive. Then the the single, uh, although, the, you know, we were talking about they put Yesterday and Act Nashley together, they didn't put both sides of this single together. I guess maybe they didn't want Ringo to close out both sides of the record. <laughs> we can work it out what goes on in Day Tripper. Yeah. In that order. We've got to get this Ringo song out. Got to stick it on an album somewhere, even if it doesn't fit. Yeah. So what song would you take off of this whole collection? You know, the people who like Yesterday and Today like to call it the rock counterpart to rubber souls folk album so i mean you know i think you want to stick with the rock songs act naturally is kind of the one that doesn't fit that's my feeling totally yeah that's the one i'd jettison you gotta pick up another rock song somewhere well i mean we were just talking about we'll pull a weight off of rubber soul and you can maybe flip those two act naturally doesn't fit too badly on rubber soul okay <laughs> although you know you, if you're gonna do that you might as well leave what goes on on rubber soul yeah right put it on a flip i can see that it's as you said the yesterday today is the rock sister to rubber soul and i can see that i, I never thought of it that way but. i've heard several people refer to it as such and, and i've come to think of it as such just because yeah it, it fits yeah yesterday and today mark two came out just shortly after uh, June 14th, 1966. The first appearance of the album in the charts was at number 120 on July the 9th. And when did it get to number one? Took it four weeks to get to number one on July the 30th. The album that it replaced was uh, Frank's Strangers <laughs> in the Night. Wow. Believe it or not. Aftermath was also in the top 10. I see. And once again, the Beatles album was replaced in the top spot by... What Now My Love by Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass Band. Wow. So that's that's twice. So, so how long did you say it was on um, number one? Five weeks from July 30th to early August. 
that means the Beatles got an extra gold record from Capitol. Billboard reported on this July 23rd issue that the album had been certified gold and would go on to sell over 2 million copies. Good collection of songs. As we had mentioned earlier, Dave Dexter did not put together this collection of songs. Yesterday and Today was prepared for release by Bill Miller. Dave Dexter was moved off to a different position, and Dexter was pretty sore (laughs) about that fact. He'd put in two hard years. (laughs) Miller had been at Capitol for over 20 years at this point. Right. Still, Dexter was like, this is my gig. Why are you throwing me off of it? And, I mean, you know, from what we've talked of today, it's kind of obvious, you know, the, the Beatles said change something and change it now. Yeah, and, and we have to keep in mind that with Dexter that uh, it wasn't just the album's covers and, and albums he changed around. There were times when he affected the sound of the records. Yeah, although he'd largely stopped doing that by this point. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> the record is good for what it is. Now, would I have rather us had the uh, collection of oldies but goodies? Well, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, of course, that d- wouldn't have made much sense as an American release. Right. But th- that actually has always seemed slightly more cohesive as an album to me than yesterday and today. It's interesting, you know, the fights over the American covers when you consider the cover for a collection of oldies, that's not really a Beatles cover. Yeah. And I don't know if they had anything to do with it. Why didn't they use the painting that the four of them did in Japan? That would have been just as good a uh, psychedelic or vaguely psychedelic color. It was, it's more Carnaby street. It just didn't fit it. I wonder the impact of that album on British fans. They were just kind of looking for songs that hadn't made their way to LP yet. The way I've always understood it from the Brits is that that was just kind of like an early version of Past Masters. Yeah, fair enough, I guess. But, you know, when you're living in real time, you get a new release and that affects your view of the picture, the the evolution, as it were. So going from, say, Revolver to Sgt. Pepper with, that stuck in the middle (laughs) if you're listening for a progression it definitely breaks the progression to get bad boy yeah exactly have you seen that weird slick that they actually prepared for yesterday and today there's all the ones we're familiar with you know there's the regular one there's the regular one with the curtains in the background there's the regular one with the blue to match the yesterday and act naturally single but there's one which is kind of like the released one but the image of the Beatles in the trunk you've got the normal one they're on the left side of the frame but you also have it tilted 90 degrees so you have two sets of Beatles on this cover it's like what are you trying to do here no I haven't seen that Capitol prepared that and it's like that's awfully strange right that's sort of says you feel like give me five good ideas (laughs) (laughs) so they're just kind of going well we could do it like that but I mean if we're going to talk about the cover it's like uh, (laughs) Well, you have to at least mention that. It's like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't get it. There's nothing unique about it. Yeah, it's not even that interesting of a picture. For them, it was just like, here's another photo session. Brian's making us take shots, and, and they don't look happy. That was yesterday and today. You know, Revolver was the way it was just because they had to do something, and they'd already given away those three songs. So I don't know what Capital's thought was. They didn't dissect it anymore, but you have to imagine that 
the Beatles themselves were putting pressure on them. Yeah. I mean, when they took those songs away, they didn't rearrange the running order. They just took them out. And even on Rubber Soul, they, for the most part, kept right. the running order. You know, minus the songs they they added or took away. The rest of the songs are kept in the same order. Yeah. You know, side one, it takes a while for John to show up. You got George twice and a couple of Pauls and then Ringo. And, oh, now John has a vocal. Is this really the guy who writes half the song? Yeah. And where do you turn the record over? <laughs> There's Rubber Soul and Yesterday and Today. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll come back and look at some of the other American releases as we go along. Next week, we have Jim Roberts, author of Fab Fools. We're going to be talking about the Beatles and comedy. Yeah, should be funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully. Without spoiling anything, pick up the audiobook. Uh, Jim does more impressions of Beatle people than anybody I've ever heard. He literally does voices for every single person all the way through the story. Yeah, incredible. All right, so we'll be back with you next week. See you then. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. The Beatles with Drive My Car, track one from their 1966 album, Yesterday and Today, released 50 years ago tomorrow. Following up the group's classic Rubber Soul album was never going to be easy, but the Beatles gathered together at number two Abbey Road Studios to begin work on the Yesterday and Today album. All right, that's not true. Let's be honest. None of that actually happened. <laughs> the Beatles never made an album called Yesterday and Today. Capitol Records compiled the album from tracks they shaved off previous British Beatles records, grabbed some tunes the boys were working on for the Revolver album, took a few single A and B sides, slapped a cover on it, well, two covers as it turns out, and released it to the U.S. marketplace on June 20th, 1966. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.